This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes teachers deserve to be celebrated and their voices elevated. Find out how you can join their movement of passionate educators in Kansas City by going to teachforamerica.org or find us on Twitter at TFA underscore KC or on Instagram at TFA KC. A video of high school cheerleaders being forced to do the splits goes viral. And our teachers ask, how do you know when you're truly pushing kids and when you're going too far? Plus, there's new research that shows kids who have a few close friends may do better later in life than kids who are more widely popular. But do kids get that message in our social media-saturated world? Those topics, plus another Ask the Teachers, this time about student data, and as always, kids these days, on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, what do you teach? High school social studies. Elaine Jarden, what do you teach? Eighth grade math. And a new face at the table, Ryan So. What Hello. do you teach? Hello, what do you teach? I'm a K-5 speech-language pathologist. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you much for jumping on to the Glad No Wrong Answers here. team. All three of them are public school teachers in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. A story out of Denver public schools caught the nation's eye this past week beyond the world of education. And as we do, we'd like to look at it through a teacher's lens. CNN reports that Denver police are now involved in the investigation of what went on at a Denver high school cheerleading practice back in June. If you haven't seen the video of that practice, fair warning, it's a bit hard to watch and, frankly, to listen to. We're not going to play a segment of it here. In it, a high school cheerleader identified as Allie Wakefield, who was 13, at least at the time that the video was shot, is shown being held down by several other girls and an adult identified as the cheerleading coach, Ozell Williams. And she's being forced to do the splits with her left leg out in front of her body, her right leg behind her. In the video, Allie is grimacing, breathing heavily in obvious pain. Repeatedly, she says, please stop, by the count of local Denver TV station 9 News. She says, please stop, nine times in less than 30 seconds on the video. Allie's parents say their daughter damaged ligaments and groin muscles as a result of being forced to do the splits before she was ready, and she's now in physical therapy, though she continued to attend team practices the rest of the summer before this video came to light. The coach, Ozell Williams an assistant coach, the school's principal, the school's assistant principal, who is also the athletic director, and a lawyer for the Denver Public Schools District, five people, have all been placed on leave pending an investigation. That's because it appears this video and what Aldi went through were known to school officials long before it was published in the media. We should say at the taping of this episode, no criminal charges have been filed. The school's superintendent said in a statement after the video went viral this past week, quote, I cannot state strongly enough as the superintendent of the school district and as the father of two high school-aged daughters, the images and actions depicted are extremely distressing and absolutely contrary to our core values as a public school community. In a response to CNN, the coach, Ozell Williams, had this to say, quote, You can definitely say that what was in the video could be seen in a different light. I would love to tell my story, but I can't say anything else at this time. The CNN story goes on to suggest that Ozell Williams was known for his disciplined coaching style and intense workout regimen. Parents reported the cheer team often had practices seven days a week. 
Allie Wakefield's parents, in fact, say they liked that about the team and about the coach, at least at first. The practice in which Allie was forced to do the splits, they say, was one of the first big physical activities of the summer practice routine for this squad. So those are the facts of this case as we know them. Um, I'm going to go straight to Elaine because, Elaine, you, in fact, were an accomplished high school cheerleader. Uh, You went on to cheer in college. You coached high school cheerleading in your teaching career before. So I just first just want to get your reactions. First, does what you see in this video, how does it conform with your experiences both as a cheerleader and as a cheerleading coach? I think that the video crosses the line in that she's repeatedly asking them to stop and nobody is listening to that. That I'm certainly not okay with. Beyond that, I would say that it's not atypical to have coaches encouraging cheerleaders to stretch beyond their limits and work on becoming more flexible. So in that way, the practice is not super unusual, but it definitely went way too far this time. Yeah. I guess let's bring in Ryan and Greg as well. So I guess more generally speaking as teachers, um, there's a question here about knowing when to draw the line and balancing that with legitimately wanting to push your students, whether it be in, in physical sports or in the classroom. Can that be a difficult balance to achieve? Can that be a difficult line to kind of toe? Sure, especially the first go-around, the first time you're a teacher, and you may have high expectations, but you have no idea where your kids are at. And if you have no idea where your kids are at, you may set up, you may set them up for failure in that everything you do is frustrational at the frustration level, and, and they're not going to get anywhere. And we should say there's, there's a big difference between pushing someone academically, mentally, and um, pushing someone physically. I think, and I think that's, there's, a, there's a real gut reaction to this particular cheerleading video just because she seems so, in so much physical distress. Sure, I have some kids that would argue, though, that, that I'm, <laughs> I'm physically hurting their brains. Yeah. Yeah. And, but you are also a soccer coach, right? So, I mean, this, this reminds me, right. so I played, I played football in mm-hmm. high school for a couple of years. That's all my mom would allow me to get away with. But, I mean, I, I would remember at the start of summer practice, you'd have two-a-days. You'd have kids throwing up. Sure. Um, Always constantly on watch for heat stroke. Um, so I guess, I mean, what's... Because you want to keep pushing the kids as, as a coach and as a teacher. You, you want them to push, like, like what Elaine said, because they, beyond their limits, just, 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 just enough. And I think the problem with the, the video, and that's where the line was crossed, is it was, it was too much of, a, uh, of crossing past their limits. Yeah, there's a difference between discomfort and pain, mm-hmm. I think. And that's right. maybe what... Right. If if they throw up because they've been running wind sprints for a half hour, you know, that's not causing any injury. And maybe the maybe they'll learn not to eat hot chips before practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Ryan, so you're sitting at the table for the first time. What are your what are your thoughts as you yeah. listen to this conversation? When I saw the video, it was absolutely disgusting to me. Um, we talked about how all of our students have limits physically and academically, and we have to accommodate for their limits. Have I mean for all of you, have you had there been times in your career where you um either in the classroom or if you've been a coach maybe as a coach, but where you've pushed a kid too far beyond their comfort level and what was how did you know that you had pushed them too far and what did you take away from that as an educator? I guess something I struggle with is um, knowing where a kid's actual limit is and where their learned helplessness limit is, academically specifically. Because um, there are some students, no matter what I put in front of them, automatically the response is, I can't do it without even making an attempt. And so it's sometimes hard to figure out exactly where 
their limit actually lies. And I also think sometimes they need to work through that discomfort to realize, mm. okay, this actually is something I can handle, even though I think I couldn't. Right. Um, I guess that, I mean, based on what you just said, Greg, before Elaine came in, that was going to be my question, I guess, just playing devil's advocate is, I mean, there. I think every teacher has heard students complain about doing a particular assignment, doing being asked to do a particular task in class. Um, and you hear that, I think as teachers, you hear that all the time, right? Like nearly every single day, I can't do this, we can't do this, this is too hard, too hard, too hard. So uh, Elaine was kind of getting into it, but I guess what is your response? What have you learned as teachers how to combat that or how to kind of deal with that? I had a... Uh experience this past week, actually during the eclipse. Um, I have a student with autism in my school, and we were hanging out, and I thought that I would take him outside for the eclipse, um, thinking that that would stretch him socially and would give us some conversational topics to do in therapy. And when we went out there, he did not handle the whole situation very well. There were too many kids. Um, the darkness was freaking him out. And so I, I feel like that I reached his limit point. And so we, we actually went inside. And, and that was a, a learning experience for me um, for how to handle when our kids reach their limit. What do we do? Wrapping up this discussion, the conversation that I get from you all, there is, I, I think, a clear analog between this situation and, and situations you've applied to, you, to your classroom teaching. Even if it is academic, it's not physical. When you see a video like this, when you see a, a teacher an educator in this way, I guess, being held accountable and possibly making a mistake, maybe going too far. How do you reflect on your own, if at all, how do you reflect on your own teaching or your own practice? Or how, what does it make you think about the job that you all do? We have to meet students where they're at and we have to change our instruction and, and change how we interact with our students based on where they're at. And all of our students are at different levels and we have to do what they need to to allow them to grow, to allow them to learn. I'm hoping that this is this coach's worst day. And I think about like what would happen if somebody had taken a 30 second video of me on my worst day? What would that look like? And what would they be assuming? And, and I don't know, it's a little bit scary. I think about the encouragement that I try to give students. And it, so you're not pushing like physically or literally, but more like pushing them to go just a little bit beyond not that much more just a little bit beyond each each time and in, in, in a way really being the cheerleader for the for the kids and, and trying to get them to realize that they can do it themselves they don't need anybody actually pushing down on them Our podcast today is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. You can make an immediate impact on that mission in Kansas City. To find out how, visit teachforamerica.org or find them on Twitter at TFA underscore KC and on Instagram at TFA KC. On to our next segment. New research published in the journal Child Development has some interesting findings about friendship. The study, and this is the full title of the study, Close Friendship Strength and Broader Peer Group Desirability as Differential Predictors of Adult Mental Health. 
has this headline conclusion. Teens who form close bonds with a few individual friends during their adolescent years generally show higher senses of self-worth and display fewer signs of mental health issues like depression, anxiety, and addiction later on in life than teens who are considered more popular and have larger friend groups that are less intensely personal. The study worked like this. Researchers tracked nearly 170 15- and 16-year-olds, interviewing them three times over a decade from when they were just starting high school to when they hit their mid-20s. They asked them questions about what friends they had, how many friends they had, as well as questions about their mental health, their sense of self-worth, feelings of anxiety, depression, substance abuse, etc., Interestingly enough, the researchers took the added step of uh, what they called triangulating these students' responses, corroborating what these teens said about their friends. So say Katie said Becca was her best friend. The researchers tried to verify with Becca that indeed they were best friends. If Tyler said he was super popular at his school, the researchers tried to confirm this fact with other students at Tyler's school. As the online media website Quartz points out, This study confirms in a lot of ways other research that has shown having close friendship bonds in adolescence can be good for people's long-term health. Having close friendships has been linked to higher academic performance and better stress management. It also falls in line with more sociological observations about friend-making in modern-day adolescence. The new book, Popular, The Power of Likeability, by a professor, Mitch Prinstein, argues that teens who seek to be more likable, that is, develop closer, more intense bonds with fewer people, are in general happier later in life than teens who seek to be popular, that is, they have larger but less intimate followings. Princetine also says that in our modern social media-obsessed culture, teens are being driven like never before towards the latter standard for friendship, that is, being popular over being likable. And it's interesting to note this study published in Child Development that I'm referencing was conducted between 2001 and 2011, so it ended before really the use of social media with teens exploded as it has in the last few years. So for the teachers at the table, I guess first, your reactions to the research, does it conform to your experiences as a teacher? Is this something that you relate to and and look at and say, ah, that makes sense or not? This kind of reminds me of, I'm not surprised it started in 2001. Do you remember when like Reviving Ophelia and Queen Bees and Wannabes and those types of books were coming out? Kind of with the same premise, basically. It was a very trendy thing then. This Um, idea that likable over popular, like establish deep ties as opposed to trying to have this broad base of. Yeah. And it was like kind of at the height of like the whole like girls are mean to each other, mean girls thing. Um, So I guess I'm not surprised that this is kind of falling in line with the findings of that previous research because I think it was kind of born out of that same time. Right. So I could could push back to the idea that you need to be popular. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of saw – I looked at the study and I read it and I I thought about who the authors were and wondering if they were the unpopular kids that are finally getting (laughs) the popular kids back. It's like, see, I proved it right. You know, I'm going to be happier in the long run, kind well, that, of thing. Well, that, that, it's got a false dichotomy that 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 you can't have both. And and I see that actually in my high school all the time, where we do have some really popular kids, but really they hang out with most of the time just two or three really really close buddies. That you, I think you can have both. So you you can be popular and likable. Yeah. Oh well, thank you so much, Greg. I was worried. <laughs> what that that begs the larger question: What does popular mm-hmm. even mean? Um, what you know. How do you all define that among among the kids you work with? What what is popularity even mean? I think popularity's changed a lot due to social media. It's now about who can create the most entertaining content, who can 
create the most salacious content um, among students. And, and social media is really using the content to determine whether a kid is popular and whether other kids are going to like them or not. You're talking about kids as content producers, as like yes. brand, as walking brands of themselves. Absolutely. Selfies are the biggest brand-making machine we have right now. And so that would seem to me, at least based on your response, that would seem to me trending towards this this kind of this idea of popularity as opposed to likability. Um, am I misreading that? No, I, you know, kids love Instagram. Kids love YouTube. And the content that they're getting on those, those sites really can make them popular or not. I look at Kylie Jenner. She doesn't have to do anything except post a picture and everyone loves it and that's how her name gets around is by the content that she posts. And, and I students think, see that. Yeah, and I think <laughs> kids are really responding to what their friends are posting on social media. So what is so what is friendship in that in that context then? What do you see? You still obviously I mean, Greg, you still obviously see kids who are making friends, making close bonds. Right. And maybe part of my experience is, is somewhat skewered by the fact that I do coach soccer. And so I, it, I, I was really thinking about this subject in, in terms of like my classroom, and I had a hard time because we were so focused on our lesson plan, and, and we've had some wonderful PD and instructional coaches that have drilled into us what's needed in a lesson plan, but I'm, there's no space in a lesson plan for time for kids to make friends or making deep social connections. Those deep social connections you know, outside of social media – come usually in after-school activities and extracurriculars, and I see that more in sports when kids put the phone down, when they don't have time to, to mess with the phone, when, when they're actually interacting and creating experiences with, with one another. So in, in that sense, like I think um, my, my perspective is kind of skewed. I don't see the social media aspect so much because I'm so focused on my lesson plan. Mm-hmm. The, most of the experience I see with kids is after school, and I see them making those connections. So our district is actually taking this in a very direct teaching approach. So we've added homeroom this year, and we teach lessons in homeroom every day. And about every Every day. Yep, every day. day. And about um, once a week, we have a lesson, like a social skills lesson, basically, that through my eyes is how do you make a friend and how do you keep a friend? Um, Because with like this move to online things, kids are missing how to make those real connections with people. And so we as the adults are now structuring that for them. Well, so what does that what does that look like? Like what are some of the things that these lessons cover? So we are only in the second week now of implementation, but last week we had circles and we were basically just talking about like how do you make eye contact with somebody? How do you introduce yourself to someone? And then talking about like favorite movies, favorite foods and practicing like responding in kind, which seems so basic, but a lot of kids are missing it. So we're kind of structuring that now. And then um, starting this week or next week, they'll be in enrichment groups of their choice where they're going to be working on a topic they're interested in. But then we as the adults are going to be facilitating those social interactions for them. Well, it's time for a segment we call Ask the Teachers. Our listeners can chime in with questions, problems, issues, dilemmas they are experiencing at work. Consider it Dear Abby for teachers. You can go to the No Wrong Answers Facebook page. You'll find a shared Google Doc, what we're calling our community feedback form. You can click on that and you'll be able to give feedback on recent episodes, share ideas for future episodes, and pose questions for our Ask the Teachers segment. We do have a question this week. We had several questions, but we're going to go with just one. And our teachers here today have been prepped on that question. So here we go. 
The question we got from a listener, why do teachers seem to avoid or be fearful about talking about student achievement data? So we'll ask our teachers that question. Why do teachers seem to avoid or be fearful about talking about student achievement data? Two things I think of is, one, uh, they don't know what data to get. Well, what data is the most important? I, in the last two, three years, I've learned so much from other teachers about how to collect uh, and disaggregate, analyze data that I didn't know at all in my first 10 years of, of teaching. And, and so part of it is just knowing how to get data and actually to look at it. Um, and then two, just how to have that conversation. I don't think teachers really know, you know, okay, so I have this data, what now? You know, that's, that's kind of the, the question that I first had. And I think teachers still struggle with that to a certain extent if they're not used to the culture of looking at data from a critical lens. And data has been, I mean, a pretty intrinsic part of education for, I mean, you, know, you could say going back to the start of No Child Left Behind, probably even mm -hmm. before that. But, I mean, 15 going on 20 years now and you're still saying – Teachers don't know how to talk about it. They had to, they're not trained to talk about it. Ryan, Elaine, what are your experiences? I think because of, like you said, No Child Left Behind, we have this strange relationship with standardized testing. And I think we need to move past that because data is so important. It can show students' growth or regression or if they're plateauing in certain areas. And what we need to do with that data is we need to educate teachers. Um, like Greg was saying, we really need to sit down and tell teachers how to interpret data because that is so powerful. And if we're educated on how to read standardized scores or how to read percentile ranks, then we can inform our parents about how our results are affecting our instruction. And when you say strange relationship, what do you mean by that? Teachers have a strange relationship to data. Well. I think because of some of the mandates with standardized testing and because of the constant change in standardized testing, I think teachers have kind of been opposed to what standardized measures give us. Um, you know, some kids aren't great test takers, and we know that. Um, standardized testing can be skewed because maybe the student doesn't know how to test on a computer. Um, however, those results that we get can give us information about where we need to drive our instruction, and we can pass that information along to our parents about how their students are performing. Elaine, what are your thoughts? Um, two things. The first thing is I think sometimes the conversation can feel threatening because you can make data say whatever you want it to say, depending on what reports you're pulling and how you're interpreting it. And so sometimes it feels like you're kind of walking into those conversations a little bit blind because you're not sure what numbers the other person's working with. The second thing, at least for me, it is hard for me to take accountability for student assessment results and student data when I don't know the target. So, for example, in one of the courses that I teach, I know exactly what kids are going to see on the end of course test, and I know how to prepare them for that test, and I take full accountability for all of that because I know exactly what the target is, and I need to teach so that kids can hit that target. In another course that I teach, the target's constantly moving. The distribution of questions on the test is changing. The content of the test is changing. The delivery of the test is changing. And it's really hard to account for all of those variables, and it feels really overwhelming because I don't know what I need to fix. Do I need to give to kids more time testing with technology? Do I need to reteach everything I did about inequalities? I don't know why because does, it's moving so much. Why does one course have such a set 
because Standard it's an end of course, and so you have to pass it to graduate from high school. This is my assumption: is that they this is in the state of Missouri in the yeah. state of Missouri that the creators of that test know that it's a big gatekeeper test, and so, so they never change it. Or rarely. It's coming up for a change this year. but And the questions change. But the format is very predictable. You receive a breakdown of like this percentage is on this topic, this percentage is on that, because we need kids to be successful there. On the map test, in contrast, it's not a gatekeeper test. You know, if you don't pass map, you still go to the next course. You still go to the next grade. And so the stakes are maybe seemingly a little lower. And so they mess with it more. Yeah. I mean, the assumption laden in the question from our listener was – that um, teachers, at least the way I read the question, teachers should be more open to talking about data, um, and that it's a shame that they that they're that they have this kind of anxiety or fear. Um, what's going to allow for teachers to be more open to using data? What's going to take away that anxiety? I think what helps the most is if we can actually move away from the standardized testing mm-hmm. da- data and use our own classroom data yes. instead. Um, more comfortable talking about that, what's going on in our own classroom with our own assessments or the school's assessments as opposed to the standardized test, which which sometimes, like for American government, it's just a 50-question multiple-choice test, and that just seems like a crapshoot. So in in some ways, I'm just like, I'm, I don't really see that data as as reliable at, at all. It's It's not useful for me. So using data that is actually helpful for us um, in planning our lessons. If, if we can focus on that, that gives us something to actually talk about. Well, and then there's, like you're saying, Greg, then there's action steps. You know, if I'm yep. looking at data from an exit ticket or a unit test, I know what I need to adjust and change to make improvements. When I'm not getting kids major standardized test scores until they've already left my class, it feels like it's it's too late. You know, I'm looking at data from kids that I don't even teach anymore. Yeah, we need empowered teachers. We need to give them the knowledge for how to uh, collect data and then interpret that data. Well, we're going to end this uh, show with kids these days. It is coming up. Stay tuned after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. You can like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. When you go to our Facebook page, log on to our shared community feedback Google Doc and give us some ideas for future shows or ask us questions for an upcoming Ask the Teachers segment. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. So if you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, what's trending among the kids you have? Greg, what are your kids into? So I, I just this this saying that I've never seen before, I saw it pop up uh, on a photo on social media of some soccer players just made the varsity team sporting their brand new jerseys saying we're ready to eat. I'm like that. Never heard that one before. I assume that means you guys are ready, ready to play and get the season rolling. I guess kids are coming in now saying, "Hey, we're ready to eat," and means they're ready for the test. Uh, that's a new one on me. Oh, Greg's mm-hmm. kids are ready to eat. Elaine, what are your kids into? Mine's also a phrase. The phrase "I'm shook" to mean I'm really surprised or yeah. <laughs> Elaine's kids are shook. Ryan, what are your kids into? <laughs> Smartwatches. All the kids have smartwatches, and I think it's great because it gets kids involved with fitness and checking their steps. But 
When you're a first grade student and your mom calls your Apple Watch in the middle of the day, there's a problem. You have first grade kids with Apple Watches. Yes. What? I know. <laughs> I don't even have one. <laughs> All right. Well, Ryan's kids are have uh, better apparatus than I do. It's good. So, all right. Well, I'm shook by that. <laughs> Me too. Good use of it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to our teachers this week, Greg Brenner, Elaine Jarden, Ryan So. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio. We're off next week for Labor Day weekend, so enjoy the holiday, teachers. And I will say for our listeners in South Texas, hunkering down for Hurricane Harvey, now Tropical Storm Harvey at the time of this taping, Stay as dry as you can and stay safe. Hope all is well with you. I'm Kyle Palmer. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers.